This is Michael, you're listening to Models of Masters, and I'm so grateful you're here. I'm breaking down personal stories, learned wisdom, and pieces of insight I hope can help you along your journey. Head over to my website, michaelbecker.org, for much more. And with that, let's get right into the show. So where I'd like to kind of start this conversation, Matt, is... I think really just with the broad concept of behavioral science. Um, And then we can kind of distill things down, you know, after that. And I really love the way that you kind of described behavioral science in general um, within the book. And you said it's essentially the process of taking our audience from the world that they currently live in to the world that we desire, right? Uh, By virtue of motivating, you know, incentivizing and shifting their habits over time toward positive change. Um, Does that definition, is that aligned with the way that you still think about the concept? Yeah, I love that you started there because I do think, you know, it's easy to take a term like behavioral science and make it kind of mean kind of anything. And I mean something relatively specific, right? I mean, behavior is an outcome, science is a process. It's right there in the name for me. I don't mean academic behavioral science. So sometimes these days I often say applied behavioral science. Hmm. There is a separate field that is academic behavioral science, which is Gnostic in nature, right? Meaning it's about knowing things at the end of the day, right? Sometimes those things lead to change, but it's the knowing that matters. Um, In applied behavioral science, it's sort of the opposite. In general, I know so that I can do. If I could just snap my fingers and everybody ate healthy, Great, I'd do that. I don't don't need to understand healthy eating. I'd love to just snap my fingers and make that true. It just turns out knowing some stuff makes that more likely, right? So when I talk about behavioral science, what I mean, applied behavioral science, what I mean is focusing on the point of everything we do is changing behavior. Even this conversation, you and I talking right now, we're trying to get the audience to actually do something, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's write a behavioral statement. Maybe it's buy a book. Maybe it's listen to another episode, right? There are all these behaviors that you and I want out of this conversation. And so then there's this intervention that is the conversation that makes that behavior more likely. Mm -hmm. And so if we focus on, if we think of the first part as focusing on behavior, the second part is, well, if we, if you and I could do multiple versions of this conversation, right? then we could use science to say, well, here is the optimal version of this conversation for getting people to do whatever the behavior is. If you and I could could jump through the multiverse, we could find the conversation that was maximally likely to get somebody to subscribe to your content, right? We could go across all the different versions, right? And do that. Since we don't live in the multiverse, we run experiments to make that happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that science bit. It's, hey, we got to define the behavior we want and then we need to use science to make sure that we get there yeah and to that point you know i guess on a macro level in terms of how audiences are responding to various cues and triggers and stimuli as they become more busy than ever i think that marketers and product people we're doing the best that we can right to to create incremental positive change within the habits of our audience um what are some things that you're seeing that people are doing to sort of effectively break through and create that change in today's busy world. Yeah. Um, so I think you, you said something really prescient in there, which is to say that, that the demands on attention have gone constantly up. My son who's seven, uh, about a year ago, we started watching the, the old episodes of, of little house on the prairie. And one of the things that he and I were talking about was just how little they had to focus on. 
right? They had a lot of work to do. You can see the dad working very, very, very hard, right? From a physical perspective, but cognitively, he's spending eight hours a day standing behind a horse, like plowing a field, right? There's no other demand on his attention. He's just doing this very straightforward task over and over repetitively for long periods of time. That's very different than the modern version of how most of us live, how we work, how we play, how we parent, right? And so I, I often sort of joke that, that for a behavioral scientist like me, attention is really the currency. It's not time or money, right? It's just attention, it's just mental space. And my favorite startups, a lot of my favorite advances in the world have been startups that actually reduce the need for attention, right? A great example is like Uber, Lyft, or ride sharing. As someone who had, you know, travels the world, you know, and part of my life is having to do these talks, travel logistics used to be quite complicated, right? I had to think really hard about like, how was I going to get from the airport, like to the place and vice versa. It's actually relatively easy at the airport because there's a list, you know, there's a line of taxis, but then from somewhere else, it's not easy at all, right? Like, yeah, I got to get a taxi to come to the hotel at the right time. Like I had to put a lot of thought into that. And now I just can kind of, if I, if it's a major city at pretty much any time of day or night, I can assume that within roughly 10-ish minutes, someone is going to come pick me up and I don't really have to do that much thinking about it. And it's, it's actually really highlighted for me when that breaks, right? We get, there's this thing called uh, the hedonic treadmill. Basically our brain acclimates to whatever is true. And so things that, you know, our computer seemed really fast yesterday, but today eh, I've acclimated to being fast. So it just gets a little slower every day, even though the computer hasn't changed. One of the ways to really see that effect is when it breaks. So, you know, there have been times where, you know, I gave a talk in a smaller town. There were Ubers at four o'clock in the afternoon, but at 4 a.m. when I need to get going to the airport, there are no Ubers and I'm sitting here panicking. You know, I'm at the front desk going, how the hell do I get a taxi here? Because like, you know, suddenly I have to think about this thing. I just haven't had to think about it anymore. Right. right. So I think that there's this lovely advancement in recognizing that you can make an entire business out of just getting people not to have to think about a thing. Yes. Right? Rather than traditionally, you know, it was about, I'm going to make, you know, Coke and Pepsi need you to think about them as often as humanly possible. Right. Like that was the, the dominant mainstream message. But really, you can beat Coke and Pepsi by just making sure you're in everybody's fridge all the time. If you're in everybody's fridge all the time, you win. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, and I think you're alluding to, you know, business models and um, a, a company like, you know, uh, Lyft or an Uber, they're battling for mind share, right? They want to be, when, when you think about, hey, I need to get from point A to point B, Uber, open the Uber app, order as quick and as frictionless as possible. They're not necessarily battling for attention. Go ahead. What I love about that though is we think of that, one of the things I love about the about friction is we think of that as as frictionless as possible, but you just named friction. I have to open the app. Right. Why do I have to do that? One of my favorite things that never really caught on, but Microsoft and Uber did a partnership where you could share your calendar with Uber and basically it would automatically, you know, it knows when you finished your meeting, it knows where your next meeting is, and it just automatically would sort of send a car sort of seamlessly so that you didn't even have to think about it at all. And eventually we'll get there. Eventually, you know, we'll have smart assistants good enough that the idea of taking out my phone and ordering a car will be so odd, <laughs> right? My son will look at that and be like, Man, you really had to work hard for that transportation there, Dad. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, times, I mean, times are gonna continue to change and 
you know, I think behavioral science uh, scientists and creators and developers will need to be on the forefront there. Um, it, just to wrap up the thought that I wanted to to lay out for you, and then I'll let you kind of take it where you want. I think that you know you have you have service a lot of service companies and service-based apps over here, but then you also have media companies and content consumption platforms like the Instagrams and the Facebooks and the Netflixes of the world who very much need and thrive and depend upon the attention of their audiences. Their goal is to get you hooked as quick as possible and to keep you coming back. Um, any thoughts on how that particular model will develop um, or successful companies in that space will shift in the future? Yeah, so I, one of the points I really love is th that you sort of made is that every company is really two things. It's some form of behavior change married to some business model, right? If you're Visa, you've married the business model that is interchange, transaction fees, to the behavior that is paying. If you're Spotify, you've monetized either subscription or advertising and the behavior that is listening, right? If you're Pepsi, it's retail sales and drinking, right? One of the ways of innovating, which is where I spend the majority of my time, is on the behavior side. Can I get you to do behaviors that you didn't do before, mm -hmm. right? Or in, you know, more behaviors or make you stop behavior, stop smoking, whatever it is. There's a whole other side of innovation, which is business model innovation. Can I take exactly the behaviors that have existed for a very long time and monetize them in a new and different and interesting way, right? So you could imagine like, spinning the, you know, what if you said Pepsi, same behavior, I'm still gonna stick with the behavior of drinking, but I'm gonna monetize via subscription instead of retail sale, right? right? That's a really interesting potential business, right? Then there's a third piece that is your ability to deliver on it. So it's operations. So to me, every business is three ingredients. It's business model times behavior change times sort of operational excellence. Can you actually deliver on that thing? And some companies have exactly the same business model and exactly the same behavior change. They just deliver phenomenally, right? Phenomenally well. Some, you know, new business model, new behavior change. I think all of those are viable routes. And so I think when you think about a company like Instagram, mm -hmm. where specific monetization model, specific behavior change, specific operational paradigm, I think they could choose to modify any of those, right? In many ways, I think the behavior one is potentially the lowest hanging fruit. They got you there. Can they get you to do something besides scroll and like and comment, right? Scroll, like, and comment is really, as a viewer, the three options that you have, right? Continue to view, react in some way, or talk about it, right? Leaving aside content creation. That's probably the easiest low-hanging fruit for could you get you people to do something else. The mythical one that everybody has proposed forever and they've never been able to deliver on is shop, right? The problem is once you're stuck with a business model like advertising, it's very hard to let go of that revenue in order to pursue revenue via a different behavior like shopping, right? And so the reason that shopping doesn't happen in Instagram is because it would hurt advertising, right? It would directly compete with their existing monetization stream. And via the announcement effect, once you have it, you don't want to give it up, right? Yeah. That's a, one of the, my fascinating examples. So I, I used to run behavioral science at Microsoft. And when I first got there, someone pointed something out to me Someone who'd been there a long time, point something out to me that I never really thought about, which was Microsoft has never been the first mover in anything, right? It wasn't the first OS. It wasn't the first productivity suite in terms of Office. It wasn't the first spreadsheet. It wasn't the first, Xbox is not the first gaming system, right? Bing is not the first uh, search engine. Each of those are separate, independent, billion dollar businesses, but they weren't there first, right? And in some ways being not there first actually helps you 
right? Because you're free to trade things off in ways that you, you know, it would be very, very, very hard. It has been very hard for Google to pivot away from advertising. They're so addicted to the revenue and Wall Street relies on them for the revenue that is advertising. And so anything else, Wall Street sort of pressures them to shut down because they only care about the thing that is advertising. Whereas if you created Google from scratch, knowing what you know today about the world, I don't know that they would have chosen the business model that is advertising. I think there's lots of other potential business models they could have chosen, but yeah. it's really hard to pivot pivot that, um, which is why I think new companies spring up, right? New people are able to come in and disrupt because they're not addicted to whatever they had before. You know, that brings up an interesting point. And I know you've worked with large multinational enterprises like the Microsofts and also, you know, smaller, you know, SaaS companies. Um, that don't have those resources necessarily to inject into hiring a team of behavioral scientists to to be very nitpicky in the details and who actually have that background. Um, I'm gonna ask you kind of a rhetorical question and you allude to it in the book. Um, what happens with a company and the, the customer experience that they seek to create and provide when they have an idea of the end goal and the end behavior that they want, but they don't necessarily understand behavioral science or know how to get there. They're just kind of taking stabs in the dark. Yeah. It's a it's a great question and 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 you're right to bring bring it out of the book because it is one that does divide behavioral scientists somewhat. There are people who are really firm, you know, you need a PhD, you need to know what the endowment effect is in order to do this. I you know, there was a period of time where I thought really chief behavioral officers were a thing, right? I think what I, as I get older, I'm 40, uh, as I get older, what I recognize is actually all roles can be behavioral science roles. Behavioral science is a methodology that is behavior as an outcome science as a process right. that can be applied across anything, right? You could have a behavioral science informed janitor, right? If the janitor said, hey, the behavior that I want is people throwing their trash in the trash can. That is a measurable, observable behavior that I can see and that is why, that I, what I want. I can specify who, I can say how I can measure it, right? I can articulate that. They can start to do science to make that possible. I can move cans around, I can put up signs. Like we actually do this all the time. We just do it in very unscientific ways typically, right? Really what's happening, and we don't often think about like, well, there's actually a behavior here. There's a target audience and there are limitations. Like there are, there are, there's more to the behavior than we think. We don't typically think in that, in that way. And then we don't use science, but I think any role could, could be that. So these days I'm much more interested in the, how do we teach the basics of behavioral science to everybody so that we have a shared language and vernacular in order to move forward together? And then we'll have different roles within that. You know, I often talk, I don't talk in the book, but have, have talked more recently about about sort of the idea of basically six behavioral scientists. There's the behavioral science leader, which is typically what we mean when we say applied behavioral science. We mean Matt Wallard, someone who knows the process, can lead others in that process, teach people to do it, et cetera, right? Like executive oversight, essentially. That's actually, I think, going to be relatively rare. We don't need that many of those people at scale, right? We do need a lot of the of the following, what I think of as five roles, right? So that strategist, quant, quantitative researcher, qualitative researcher, designer, and then project manager. So for me, strategist is organizing what behavior it is we wanna do. They're bridging that gap between business model and behavior. So for example, let's say you were the strategist on my team. uh, And let's say this was back when we worked at Clover. 
you you are looking at data and saying, hey, you know what? We can make a lot of money if people get flu shots, right? Like there is a strategic opportunity here that is getting flu shots that we can do. It's defining not how, not how we're gonna get people to get flu shots, but if I could just snap my fingers and make it true, that thing would be really good for us, right? It would be really good for us if people did whatever that is. I think in our minds, we think we know that. I actually think it's a tremendous amount of work. The example I'll give you is, is flu shots. When I, when we first started working on that at Clover, I sort of said to experienced people, how much do you think it's worth to us as a business for each individual flu shot, right? Like if Michael gets a flu shot, how much money do you think that we make? And the average answer was about 10 bucks. It turned out when you did all the math to be about a hundred bucks, right? They were off by, an, really experienced people were off by an order of magnitude about how much that actually affected our business. So I think there's a huge amount of work to do around how valuable is a specific behavior to us and what behaviors do we wanna go after for what populations? So that's strategy to me, strategist. Then there's quantitative researcher and qualitative researcher, what we typically call data scientists and user researchers, right? Or, or UX researchers. It, those are different lenses for me on understanding the world as it exists today. Not experimental science, right? Not running a pilot, but observational science, understanding what is true in the world, right? I, I think those people have the right skills, but we're not using them particularly effectively. For example, most companies have user research and data science in different parts of the org. Mm -hmm. That's weird, right? Like they should be working together on a daily basis because they're using lenses to save, you know, the different lenses, same problem. I would think they would be really close together, but really they're run completely independently. In many companies, they don't talk at all, or if they do, they talk on a sort of like six month cycle. That's just weird, right? right? right. And so there's a lot of these pieces, like the strategist, there are people who have the skills to tell me how much a flu shot is worth to me as a business, right? Actuaries, you know, MBAs, like there's a whole bunch of people who are good at that. We are not using them particularly effectively in our processes because we've siloed them somewhere over there. Right. They give us these giant strategy decks once every six months or so. <clears throat> like it's just not well organized. Same thing with quant and qual. People have the skills, it's just not organized well, right? I think that's what behavioral science lends. Designer. We say designer and most people think of a visual designer, someone who produces the artifact that is visual design. What I mean is someone who's skilled at changing behavior, who has experience with changing behavior in the domain that you're interested in. Could be a coach, could be you know a health practitioner. It's someone who has done that. My mom is a nurse. Nurses intuitively have done a lot of informal experiments to understand how to change people's behavior. They make great designers for health behavior change because they've seen it a lot. Right. Human, human design. Oh, exactly. Human design, behavioral design, which is you could be a terrible visual designer and a great human designer. Right. Behavioral design. Yeah. You bring up a great point there with just the siloed, the, the silo effect, I think, within large organizations, like the more fragmentation that you have among teams and the less that behavioral change is at the core of your operating philosophy, the less likely you're gonna you're gonna be successful in creating that change with your with your consumer 100 uh, it's, it's that point. coordination piece and it's funny yeah. we get a lot of satisfaction from that if you talk to employees one of the number one predictors of employee retention is collaborative work across disciplines right yeah. because it allows me the two things that are the magic formula for happiness at work autonomy mm -hmm. and accountability right Michael is the recognized quant expert on our team, right? 
he has accountabilities, right? He owns the lane that is data, yeah. right? But because he owns the lane, it means even if Matt, the leader says, yeah, hey, I'd do that differently than you do it, you still win because you're accountable. You can be autonomous. You can do it your way, right? And being accountable for something and autonomous in how you do it is the magic formula. I have a, we talked about, I have a seven-year-old. Like, how do you make a seven-year-old really happy? Give them a goal and then let them decide how they're going to reach that goal, right? Say, this is yours. Like, why do people like puppies? Because it's your puppy and you can take care of it the way you want to take care of it within some bounds, right? We need more of that at work. But in order for that to work, we need a process that allows people to have those two things. You you brought up the, the flu example. I'm curious if there are if there is any other or maybe one that sticks out kind of story or scenario where a quantifiable behavioral change was created either with the businesses you've been a part of or that you've worked with um, that's kind of top of mind that you could share oh there's so many examples i mean i've had a long and colorful colorful career and you know now i get to lead um you know i lead a company called bside.io which is um called a consulting collective it's a bunch of applied behavioral scientists you know who have been leaders over the last 20 years who have come together and most of us still have full-time jobs elsewhere we've just come together to teach the discipline and mm -hmm. so every time i get in a room with them you know it's sort of like i don't know oceans leaven over beers right it's like you know we're just telling stories about fun weird shit we've done over the years yeah um things that come to mind uh you know i am a, a very uh rampant and angry feminist i think uh uh when we're recording this, folks, we had a Democratic election in the United States last night. So people voted and, and you know, so now we know the results of most races. Um, and, you know, obviously uh, 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 feminist issues, explicitly feminist issues were a big, big part of last night. So that's on my mind. So one of my example was something like Get Raised, right? After we sold my first startup to, to um, I'm the head of product of a startup founded by a guy named uh, Avi Karnani. We sold to Lending Tree uh, in the personal finance space. We were Mint's biggest competitor. And when I looked at the data, you know, when you look at what women save as a percentage of their income, they actually kick the shit out of men. They're much better savers than men are as a percentage of their income. But the moment you take away the last part and you just say raw dollars, actually men win. Why? Because women are systematically underpaid in the United States by somewhere between 20 and 50%, depending on your ethnicity, right? So that's a lot of money, right? <laughs> so we sold this company, but we decided, hey, we want to do something else. And so, you know, we started with, yeah, you need some sort of behavioral statement. I don't want to know what I want. I want employed women to ask for and get raises, right? I have a target audience, right? Who want to be paid fairly, a motivation, right? So when women who are employed want to be paid fairly, they will ask for and get a raise, right? And I can measure that and I can decide there's some limitations on who I'm not going to consider, right? I'm not going to consider unemployed women, I'm not gonna, you know, if they're on a fixed salary schedule like the government, right? Like I got to set some things aside, but generally I know what I want. Then I got to go look at the world, right? We talk about promoting pressures, things that make a behavior more likely, inhibiting pressures, things that make behavior less likely. So I always look at five groups of people because they're MISI, right? Mutually exhaustive, uh, mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive. Everybody in the world, every woman in the world fits in, every employed woman in the world fits into one of these five categories. They either often ask for a raise, never ask for a raise, sometimes ask for a raise, didn't used to ask for raises, but recently started, or used to ask for raises, but recently stopped, right? <laughs> Everybody fits into one of those five groups. So I can start looking at those groups and seeing what's different. And the thing that I discover is, you know, it's not a promoting pressure problem. It's not like women are wandering around being like, you know what I don't want? I don't want to be paid fairly. It's fine. I'm fine with the gender wage gap as it is, 
Yeah. Now that sounds dumb, but you got to think about, you know, there's an entire book, Lean In, that's all about, yeah, you got to want it more, right? It's about more promoting pressure. It's not a promoting pressure problem. It's an inhibiting pressure problem. Am I in fact being underpaid? By how much? Who do I even talk to about it? I've never asked for a raise before. Are they going to fire me? All of these inhibiting pressures, right? So I can go do that research quantitatively, qualitatively to start to get to that. Ah, it's about inhibiting pressures. I'm going to go design some interventions against that. Maybe I'll make a, a, a form template for you to use. Maybe I'll do something. Got to start with a pilot, right? We got to experiment. Yeah. So I say on social media, hey, look, if you want to ask for a raise, give me a call. I'll, I'll coach you in it for free. Right, set up some time with me. I'll coach you through the process. I'll give you some data. I'll help you find the format. Because I just want to experiment. Hey, does reducing the inhibiting pressure actually result in the behavior I want? And it turns out it does. And so then I can go build something. And that resulted in something we call Get Raised, um, which helped women uh, over about a 10 year period earn about $4 billion in raises. Right? So, really clear like, I know what I want. I know what success looks like. I've defined it behaviorally. I can see observably what people will be doing when I'm successful. I've understood the promoting and inhibiting pressures that make that true or not true today. I've intervened on those pressures, right? I'm going to reduce these inhibiting pressures. And I ran a pilot to make sure that actually works. And then I scaled it up out into the world. And that's that's the kind of motion I'd love to see. If we go back to our janitor, you can imagine that, right? You can imagine a janitor saying, hey, here's what I actually want people to do or not do, right? Here's why they're doing or not doing that today. Here's how I'm going to intervene. And then I'm going to try that before I scale it out to make sure it works before I sort of set it in stone. Beautiful. And I'd like to take you, if I could, just a layer deeper into tactics and techniques, um, because I love studying the subliminal and subconscious layers of consciousness. It's um, I had my, I guess you would call it spiritual awakening a couple of years ago. And I started becoming privy to all of these different layers of thinking that many of which are operating sort of below our our conscious awareness right and i think that's where good behavioral scientists um thrive and focus and you can kind of get as granular or broad with this as you want but what are some things that say i don't know an app or a, a popular platform that that most people use and are familiar with what are some things that they're doing to really create behavior change on those more subtle levels in a way that's favorable for them. Yeah, I think um, one of the keys to getting this right inside of an organization is is not being dogmatic about what you what is acceptable for changing behavior. So what do I mean by that? Um, it is scientifically true that the color of M&Ms influences how many you eat, yeah. right? That if I give you a bowl of just one color, you'll eat fewer than if I give you the whole mix. This is valid, I can experiment, I can show this to be true. Engineers get really mad at me about that because they're like, but it shouldn't matter. They're not different flavors. It's not like a relevant characteristic of the product. It isn't the reason you eat M&Ms in the first place, like taste. And it, it pisses them off that something as stupid as color matters, right? In order to do this well, to your point, you have to let go of the idea that some layers are better than others, right? If colors work, I'll use colors. If tastes work, I'll use taste, right? Like, I don't care, right? I'm just looking at the levers that are available to me and pulling them in the order that creates the thing, as long as you're doing that ethically. I do think it's important to say, hey, look, there are, there are levers that you can't pull because for ethical reasons. I was gonna but, ask you. Yeah, color's, color's not an ethical issue. <laughs> so you have to let go of your personal pissed offedness that, that it, you know, if whispering in Michael's ear, like, drink more water works, Great, do it. I don't, you know, like I don't, as long as that's ethically reasonable, I don't care that it seems dumb, right? Even if 
if if I could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that saying to Michael every day, schmoogledy boogle, made him drink more water, cool, say schmoogledy boogle every day, like design an app that says schmoogledy boogle and move on, right? People get very wrapped up in the, no, it has to fit my conception of how humans work. And that's, now you're in the academic science, right? I don't care. I just care that it works, right? In a way that's replicable and that I understand enough to be able to, to, to change if it doesn't work, right? And that's ethical and reasonable and doesn't hurt anybody. Like that, that is all I care about. And so I think there's, color is a great example. I think there are, there are companies that use color really well to help guide people's attention, you know, help them understand what to focus on and what not to focus on, preserve optionality so that people can change something if they need to, but then, you know, de-emphasize it if it's something that most people wouldn't change as an example. I think those, that kind of stuff is great, right? Because, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a letting go of the need for it to make sense in a particular kind of rule set. And what's interesting is cross-culturally, we have very different senses of what should matter. So there are cultures, right? For in Europe, for example, people are much more willing to say that color matters, right? They're much more willing to say, oh yeah, like color is a valid lever for changing behavior. For some reason, Americans like not, don't, it, that offends some, some American notion. There's a cultural value somehow that I can show in a lab that Europeans are much more willing to acknowledge that as a behavioral lever than our Americans. Why? No idea, right? No idea. But it's that letting go of that makes good behavioral science. Yeah, we have to let go to let go of our own inherent biases and opinions to really be most effective. Like as a marketer, you, we can't we can't be attached to the creative that we're putting out if one one tactic isn't working and another is is clearly you know working to create the outcomes that we want um so we have to get past those those biases that we carry um, yeah one of the one of the one of the truisms from product that we frequently say is fall in love with your problem not your solution yeah right exactly. and and i think that that it's so hard to do i mean it's so easy to flippantly be like yeah do that come on michael just do no, that's hard I have been doing this for a really long time and there are behavioral scientists even older than I who, yeah. who you know, we frequently point out knowing is not, I can know about all about my biases and still fall victim to them, which is why to me, this is a team sport. Behavioral science benefits very much from diversity, right? Because the more people I can get in the room, the more different perspectives that I can get, the more eyes I can get on something, the more likely it is I'm going to be able to see, hey, some of those potential things that I couldn't think about. Science is, the behavioral science process that, that I use is designed to be debiasing, right? It is designed to be debiasing, but it's not perfect, right? It is impossible for me to totally debias Michael. And so the best hedge that we have against behavioral science being imperfect is making sure there are lots of people involved in it. Yeah, yeah. My last question, I do want to get your thoughts on sort of the, the moral and ethical side of this. Um, I am also fascinated uh, about and with dark psychology and dark magic, not because I want to use it, but because I want to be able to identify and decipher it when I feel it or see it out in the world. And I like to understand just the psychology of change and of persuasion. Um, what are, I guess, what are some considerations that you know, we need to make in any commercial capacity when sort of thinking about behavioral change and 
I guess as a related point that you can address or not, like with companies that do sell um, dangerous or not healthy products, like tobacco companies, like what are some of the things that that maybe are controversial that they're doing on a subliminal level? Yeah, uh, it's a great it's a great question. I think the tobacco ones are the easy ones, right? It's easy to be like, oh man, that's bad for people, and it has all these negative health effects, and it's bad, right? The hard part we we talked about bias two seconds ago. The hard part is once you're in it, it's really easy to manipulate anything to sound sort of reasonable, right? right? Uh, and so that's why having people that are outside of it take a look is such an important, that's why that diversity part matters so much. You know, we talk about inclusion. I talk about the importance of two in a room, right? When one person in a room raises an objection, ah, it's just Matt being that bleeding heart liberal guy that he is. But if two people say it, right, then it's real. Right. Then it's not Matt, the bleeding heart, liberal heart guy. Then it's like, oh, yeah. Right. There's something going on here. And it's that incremental person that is so important. You know, there's a whole chapter in the book on ethics. And it's, you know, it's a long and fraught. You and I could do a follow up version of this where we talked about nothing but ethics for a long time. You know, I always try and try and try and keep in mind three rules. Right. One of them is that both the outcome and the process have to be ethical. Right. We often combine those together, but the interv you can have getting people to smoke tobacco in a way that's unhealthy for them is is an unethical outcome. Mm -hmm. Right. And by virtue of the fact that the outcome is unethical, all of the things that you do to lead to that outcome automatically become unethical. You can have an ethical outcome and still have unethical processes. Sure. Right. I want everybody to get flu shots. I passionately believe in everybody getting flu shots because I know as a scientist that it's really good for people and it saves lots of lives and it's very important. I can't go around holding, you know, guns to people's heads and saying you have to get a flu shot, right? That the process can be unethical too. You can have the best of intentions, right? And still have unethical processes. So the first thing is both outcomes and processes have to be considered as ethical. The second thing that I always try and remember is that most of our desires compete with each other, right? So everybody at some level wants to be healthy, right? Wants to get a flu shot. But there are other things I want to do too. I want to show up for my kid, right? At the right time and in the right place. And there's some level at which, and this goes back to your like, everything is attention notion. There's some level at which those two things compete. I can go spend time with my kid or I can go get a flu shot, right? And so when we're creating behavior, you can have a really ethical outcome and a really ethical process, but the cost can be so high to something else, right? That that becomes unethical. It becomes unethical, not because the outcome is unethical or the process is unethical, but the cost of that process is, is so expensive, whether that's in time or money or anything else, that it, that it harms another one of the things that I hold really dear and important. Right. right? A, a really great example of this is freedom of speech, right? So I can ban your, I can moderate your comment with mm -hmm. the best of intentions. I don't want hate to spread. And in a really reasonable way, I have rules. You violated those rules. Those rules were clear up front. But you can do that in a way that destroys a macro, another motivation that is freedom of speech, right? And, and that can become too expensive. And so you have to make sure you're trading off between things effectively, right? And then the last thing, and this is the like tried and true method that I love, is don't do shit you're not willing to talk about, right? If you're not willing to be public about it, then then that that's that's a problem. If you have any instinct, like shame, Brene Brown is a complicated person, and her work is complicated. But but I think her work on shame is really amazing. Uh, 
if you find, if there isn't even a bone in your body that makes you ashamed for a second of what you're doing. Yeah. That's a, you got to pull up, right? You got to go find somebody to talk to. You got to like really, I mean, just relentlessly shed light on those things that, that, that you have those temptations of shame around because that's a sign that something's going wrong. So again, it goes back to that. It's a team sport thing, right? I need extra, I need my parents. I need, you know, it's interesting. Someone, Elon recently bought Twitter. Yep. Someone was recently pointing out that over the years, they've known Elon over a long period of time, he's increasingly been surrounded by sycophants, right? So he went from a place where he had people who were willing to tell him no and have intelligent, provocative just conversations with him to mm -hmm. people who only told him yes and how dangerous that was. And I sort of feel that way about behavioral science, right? You can get to a place where you've been with a team too long and they'll just go along with you because Matt Wallard is a genius and we know he's well-intentioned and blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. I need that fresh blood that doesn't know me and doesn't respect me and, and does push back and does feel permissioned to sort of say, hey man, you're this dark, don't do that. Right. Right. And so part of that to me is just making sure there's fresh people around you, people you've mm -hmm. never met. You have to meet new people so that new people and new perspectives who are uninfluenced by their liking of you, they don't like you yet, right? And so they're much more able to be like, man, that's bad, don't do that. Yeah, I wanna throw in one tidbit too that you you kind of reminded me of. I think that we're really entering this age of transparency and um, consumers, especially you know younger cohorts coming up, Gen Z and Gen X who are taking over the the majority of the, the market in terms of buying power, like, we 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 want to know the truth right and then we'll make our own buying decisions and i think that the companies that are willing to sort of sacrifice sales um or even the brand itself in the name of radical transparency are actually going to be the ones that come out on top through behavior change and and um persuasion it's better to just be upfront. i think in today's day and age when information is so readily available like you're going to find out the truth at some point so just yeah. wanted to throw that in. No, I love that. I mean, I think, again, when you go back to last night's elections, yeah, you know, Gen Z turned out in droves, first of all, really high participation rates, and voted a very democratic ticket, generally speaking, right? Not everybody, but generally speaking. And I think a part of that is, I think you're right, there has been a sea change. You know, we talk about the Overton window, right? What is acceptable to not, you know, unacceptable to acceptable to unacceptable on either side. And the Overton window around your willingness to, 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 you know, we went from a place in the fifties where like, unless it was explicitly your, unless it was explicitly something we considered to be public, it was assumed to be private. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's as true anymore, particularly for public figures where, you know, unless it's, unless it's explicitly assumed to be private, it should be default public. Right. I have tried very hard. I've made a large number of mistakes in my life and I have tried to the best of my ability to be honest about those. There's a reason I think that you know that that the alcohol anonymous process emphasizes you know going back and apologizing and being clear about the mistakes that you made because and this goes back to that Brene Brown shame point it's really hard to act ethically in a situation in which you are not where you're feeling like you have to hold hold things back exactly right yeah exactly um, I'm glad you brought that up that's that's an important component of all this we could go into a whole other conversation on that point as well. Um, <laughs> well, it sounds like a good reason to have another conversation, my friend. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, Matt, thank you so much for your time. Where can people go to grab the book? I am almost done. I, I 
can just plug this and say uh, start at the end is is such a captivating great book for any marketers, product people, uh, founders, create anybody putting out information and, and trying to create change in the world. Where can people grab that and find you? Yeah, so the book is on Amazon. I mean, it came out from 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 uh, 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 Penguin. Uh, random house so it's, it's on amazon and we'll be there presumably forever i suppose um you know i also i mean easy person to find publicly right i try I do open office hours right so anyone in the world can book time with me for free to talk through whatever behavior science thing they're trying to work on you know i'm, I'm active on twitter and other places um but I, you know the thing i would say is look reading the book is great doing all these things is great there's no substitute for practice right, right. even if you never read my book listen to this podcast with michael and Try and think about two things. Like you got to get in that habit of mind of like, hey, what behavior do I want to change? And how am I going to do that? How would I run an experiment to make that, right? I always say that a good behavioral scientist is that person that's sitting on the subway going, how would I get everybody to stand up and walk in a circle right now so we could get some exercise? How would I get everybody to give up their seats to pregnant women? How could I give everybody to not spit on the floor? Like they're just always playing that mental game of how could I make this thing happen, right? Um, behaviorally. And I think that that's, it's just that practice, 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 practice. So I think there's great materials. Amy Bucher's book is amazing. There's lots of great books out there. There's lots of great things. There is no substitute for just getting in that habit of mind of doing it and then getting feedback from others on doing it, doing it together in the open, right? I said, it's a team sport. Find your team, go play. Yeah. And learn along the way and you'll improve. Awesome. Matt Waller, thank you so much for your time today. Michael, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Hey guys, that's it for this episode. Please be sure to rate, review, comment, and share. Everything helps. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. My book, Content Capitalist, is on sale now. Grab your copy by visiting my website or tapping the link in the episode description. I also just released the online learning portal, which expands on what I share in the book. This includes four hours of edited, captioned video tutorials and trainings, plus dozens of downloadables and templates. Between the book and the eAcademy, you're going to be equipped to literally blow your revenue targets out of the water and eviscerate your competition this year, all by putting content at the core. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate, review, comment, and share all the things and hit me up on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect. I am here to serve you and that's it. I will see you in the next episode.